When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. The front cover of Bonobo's new album, Fragments, shows a horizon of water distorted by churning waves. Lit by impossibly beautiful colours of what could either be a sunset or sunrise, the image implies fast approaching depths. It's the type of thing that could make you hold your breath. The electronic music that Simon Green creates as Bonobo has followed a similar principle for over 20 years. Complete, honest immersion, and a sense that as much as you're willing to let go, Green's compositions will be there to catch you. To create fragments, Green had to rediscover that principle. As the pandemic swept across the world, Green found himself, like most people, uninspired and overwhelmed. But a string of mostly remote collaborations helped set him back on the path. Jazz harpist Lara Samogi helps infuse fragments with an Alice Coltrane-inspired strain of transcendence, and vocal contributions from Jamila Woods, Joji, and Kadja Bonet bring individual strains of soul to the more down-tempo moments of Bonobo's latest project. Thankfully, the dance floor remains a priority for Bonobo, and on songs like Otomo featuring O'Flynn, Age of Phase, and Shadows featuring Jordan Rakai. He's never sounded more in touch with the rhythms of the rave. Just two days before the release of Fragments, the faders Jordan Darville spoke with Bonobo about the album's unusual creation, making works of challenging nostalgia and his musical upbringing. Simon Green, aka Bonobo, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, how are you? Happy New Year. What did you do to bring in the, the new, hopefully better year? Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, we can't have another mad one. Well, a lot of stuff got cancelled. I was supposed to play some shows. I actually ended up still playing something. I DJed in Texas in this sort of like outdoor, you know, very like Austin, Texas style kind of venue, which was kind of fun. I mean, I'm supposed to be in Canada today playing a show in Montreal, but, you know, I, I guess Canada's gone back into lockdown I mean, I feel like this is the year ahead, you know, everything is a little bit sort of unpredictable and I, I imagine it's just going to roll on like this for a little while, but but hopefully, you know, between it, we'll get some, some moments in. It must have felt nice to get out and do shows and to play music from the new record, especially considering that you weren't able to do that while you were putting the record together. Definitely. I mean, uh, as of like July... 2021 i was able to sort of play shows again but that was after the record was finished so having that period of not being able to sort of try stuff out and i think the only real way to get a, an honest kind of reaction is to see it in real time um of of making new music and without having those audiences it was definitely a bit like flying blind but yeah it was also quite reassuring to, to actually finally get to play out some of this music i've been working on in sort of isolation for a year and a half um, and to sort of see see it kind of a, a response in real time for the for the first time, it was very like it was very re rewarding. 
Those words that you just used, honest reaction, that to me, that's very intense because if you're making an album and part of the process requires to gauge these reactions from the audience and you don't have that outlet, it sounds like you could have been flying blind essentially during the, the making of the album. Did you find that was the case or did muscle memory kick in at some point? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it also gets to a point, I think, you know, because music's based in optimism and it needs an outlet. And I think without one, in the middle of 2020, I was just kind of, you know, a bit lost. Like, oh, what, what am I doing? Like, what's the point of this? If there's no sort of outlet, if there's no audience, if there's nobody to share this with. And also that sense of optimism and hope, you know, if, if you don't have that, then, then I guess at least, at least my music, it feels kind of rooted in that. So it was trying to sort of make sense of what I was doing and, and sort of reframe it and really kind of taking a step back to, to not just sort of, this is just another record I'm making. This is now sort of like, I need to sort of really understand what I'm trying to say and why I'm trying to say it, which I think ultimately was a good process. And to sort of come out the other side of that with something that I was happy with was, it took, it took some, you know, it took some sort of motivation to get myself through that period. Mm -hmm. I mean, given how, thoughtful your music has been historically it sounds to me like that's a question that would sort of naturally come to you during the creation process of each album but i figure it must have taken on a new intensity with the pandemic and everything we've just been talking about all the effects of it yeah absolutely i mean i completely ground to a halt for a while um for a couple of months i mean i'm sure everybody else did it felt like a, you know it was a very like it seemed to be that sort of at the beginning of that period, everybody was sort of so excited about the potential of how much great art was going to come from this period. But then, you know, nobody really wants to commemorate a bad time. So there's, you know, there's no songs written about the Spanish flu. I think everyone just wants to sort of move on and forget about the thing as quickly as possible. But, you know, yeah, you have to find ways of, of find ways of like kickstarting creative momentum again and that's just sort of finding you know in a more sort of micro way of finding things to be exciting and find the process exciting and find kind of find that there is you know there's something there's something to be said what you're saying though about you know art coming out of bad times and, and feeling this pressure with the, the world readjusting to sort of make something that speaks to these cataclysmic shifts that that we were seeing i feel that really hits onto you know one of the the lesser spoken about um, pressures that a lot of creative people felt this idea that you need to make the thing and if it doesn't come then it can really sort of collapse your identity yeah i mean the thing being the sort of the statement that needs to be made at the time but i think yeah i mean to sort of overthink it i think everybody's mind space is going to be affected so whatever the thing is that you do in that time is going to be the thing you know it doesn't necessarily need to be anything other than a document of where you were at personally um and i think that's the same with all records and it's definitely the same with like the ones i've made before i i find that sort of there are memories connected to each record that i've made that that sort of serve as a kind of document of that time and perhaps in a sort of indirect way because it's, it's sort of you know it's largely instrumental electronic music so it's it's how do you really sort of interpret those themes um if, if not in a lyrical way but it's still a way the, the way that your kind of head was facing at that time so what themes were you um extracting from from your memories that you pulled for this record i think there was a lot of nostalgia during you know during last year and there always is and i don't like to sort of wallow in nostalgia i don't think it's a very healthy place to be 
but I was I found myself musically going back to a lot of stuff I was listening to when I was younger, and particularly sort of the first inroads into electronic music and hearing sort of um, like a lot of early '90s kind of UK rave. Well, I guess kind of you know from everywhere really, but but hearing things like sort of Meat Beat Manifesto, Radio Babylon, kind of like echoing through the forest, you know, when you're like excited sixteen year old, and even stuff like or you know the sort of classic orbital records and like Halison and I was finding a sort of a deep nostalgia for that for that period and just my kind of upbringing in, in sort of rural England as well and sort of exposure to music and exposure to that kind of culture in a way that's not as easy to do as it is now you know you had to like physically go to a place and, and get lost for a little while and drive around and find the you know find the party and hear this music and it's the only place you could really hear it until you went to the next party the next weekend so those kind of ideas were like coming into yeah coming into my mind whilst I was whilst I was working on this and trying to sort of capture that that sort of like romance of of hearing that music for the first time. That's that's very interesting because I, I suppose my definition of nostalgia it's perhaps a bit more binary and it definitely wasn't you know triggered by listening to this album. There was one moment that I think sort of really encapsulates how well you work with nostalgic elements and it's the opening seconds of polyghost the first track on the record you have a, a minute of these like beautiful beautiful string instrumentation and then just very slightly in the background there's this sweep that i associate with pirate radio broadcasts it's like it's almost it's almost kind of percussive and you can you can hear it in like old jungle bootlegs and and rave tapes from the early 90s It just works so perfectly. It bends the nostalgic impulse, but doesn't break it, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, that does make sense. Yeah, I think the thing you're talking about is a sort of, um, it's like a resonant sweep across this sort of um, droning synth sound. And yeah, like those kind of low pass filters, it was the sound of jungle and drummer bass and a lot of that era. I mean, I think the original one was from like the, the Akai sampler, the S950. I, yeah, this has come up before actually, but yeah, there is a lot of nostalgia in certain effect styles and like, you know, those filter sweeps are especially kind of prevalent of, of like that, that era of, of like DIY and pirate radio and, and um, especially like everything that was happening in the UK. But yeah, it's nice. I hadn't actually thought of that at the time. I think I guess it was more of a sort of subconscious choice of things to do, but yeah, that's it's like a couple of people have mentioned that when I played it, I, I, I thought it was like such a subtle thing, but, but it seems to have sort of, you know, sparked a little bit of nostalgia for people when I played it to them. Going on the nostalgia theme, I was scrolling through your Instagram and you posted a photo of yourself in a room. And in the caption, you said, my father and I used to listen to folk archive sessions here together. And you've mentioned before how both of your parents were very talented musicians. I was wondering how this background in folk music has influenced your approach to electronic. 
Yeah, I mean, that room is Cecil Sharp House in North London, which was, uh, and still is, um, it's sort of an institution of, of folk music. And they have like, I mean, there's so many sessions and performances and just kind of, uh, and everything else that happens in that. So my, my dad was part of the folk scene in the 70s and 80s, and he would play there quite regularly. Um, and we would go and watch him play with his friends. And that was the sort of, I mean, the community where I grew up was rural. We were in sort of, you know, we're just outside of London in Hampshire and musically very social. My parents and my dad especially would have a lot of friends over at the weekend and people would sort of come to either our house or we'd go to stay at other people's houses and there'd be, uh, you know, there'd be like groups of musicians and the whole weekend would be centered around everybody playing and sort of jamming together. There's no real sort of like ends to it. It was just that's how they would spend the weekends together. Everybody would sort of move to somebody's house and kind of set up for the weekend and people would make food and drink beer and play music. Um, it was just this thing that was a constant orbit. And then I guess as I kind of got a little older, the folk music itself, I was never like that at the time. I was around it, but I was never that interested in English folk music, maybe a little bit more so now. But yeah, I mean, that sort of manifested into, into other ways with me as kind of the usual sort of route of like, teen, you know, as a teenager being into kind of like alt rock and indie rock and, and just getting into guitars and, and making a lot of noise in the garage with my friends was sort of my equivalent of doing that. And it just felt like there was never a sort of point where, oh, I'm going to try and learn how to play guitar. It was just, this is kind of what you do as a social thing with your friends. There's always going to be instruments and there's always going to be music. And so I imagine you drew a lot of lessons about collaboration that you still pull on to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Just the sense of not really having an end goal necessarily with everything, you know, sometimes just the process of of being in a room and, and making a noise is that that's it. You know, it doesn't, I don't think everything has to sort of have a, have a goal or have a, an idea of like being a finished piece of music. And that's something that I kind of try and keep in mind that that not everything I do is necessarily for a project or for a record and only some of it's going to make the actual kind of the cut and that's fine and I, I I'm not precious of everything that I do and there's a lot of music that for every record there's probably like another at least the same amount and and more that doesn't ever see the light of day but the process is you know the, the actually the doing the actual work is part of the fun and that's kind of the education really and that's sort of the the way of learning and experimenting and being excited about music, but it doesn't necessarily all have to be released. Well, I mean, given that you end the process of recording for an album with this wealth of material, how do you approach the sequencing side of it? I think I start looking for a shape and, and balance really, because early on, for example, in this record, I was making, I was very excited to be in that kind of more dance floor leaning territory of like everything being a sort of 125 to 130 bpm and really kind of like getting into the sort of using modular sense to create sort of a lot of like randomization so i thought for a while you know this maybe this record is all is just that it's going to be like 12 tracks of like quite dance floor leaning 4-4 kind of music and as other songs started coming in and as i started working with vocalists i realized that there's there is a balance in it and and to me it's sort of it's kind of like seeing seeing a sort of broad shape if it sort of like leans too far towards one 
thing stylistically, then it's, it's a case of the sequencing is, is going to reflect like what it needs for balance. And that usually comes sort of much later. It's just kind of getting a, a, a mass, like a sort of critical mass of music and then just sort of seeing what it all looks like from afar and then what it needs to be kind of just sort of like to be a sort of balanced body of work, I guess. From this project, I, I, I got the feeling of it as kind of like an ecosystem rather than like a book divided into chapters, the way everything is is spread out. And like you said, there's this balance, which I guess is kind of appropriate given, you know, your your thematic attachment to, you know, nature and, and these kinds of things. Yeah. And I think the way it's sequenced as well is is a little different. I mean, it's sort of the second half is is more of a, a headsy end of the record you know like a lot of those instrumental they're more sort of like i guess what would you call them electronic instrumental parts they they all happen towards the end and i just kind of like the idea of that being this 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 sort of like long stretch if anything it's like you know it's that reflects on the sort of more traditional like a side b side format of of an album even though we're sort of far away from that now but yeah I, i like the idea of it being a kind of part one and part two in a way how did the collaborations for this album come together? I assumed that they were all done remotely. For the most part, yeah. I mean, I managed to actually get in the room with a couple of people. So the, the, the whole um, period was bookended by being able to be in the room with uh, Jordan Rakai at the beginning because that happened in 2019 and that was one of the first pieces in place. And we'd worked together before and we toured together. And I had this this tune which was just sort of a, a, a long you know I was trying to sort of think of people like Theo Parrish and Moody Man and this sort of like quite swingy slow Detroity kind of thing that I had and um, I didn't really sort of see the potential of it as being a song until Jordan tried some verses on it and then we ended up sort of it ended up sort of taking this kind of like song like format And then at the very end, Casual Bonnet, I was able to get in the room with. But yeah, everything else happened remotely. And I think that sort of, it seemed that everybody else was feeling the same, sort of the same lack of kind of motivation or inspiration perhaps. Because I'd, I'd reached out to people, Jamila Woods in particular, and she was like very excited to be on board and was like, yes, I'm down to do something. And then I think everybody just sort of like lost the, the wind out of their sails for a few months. And then out of the blue, she kind of texted me and was like, I'm going to go and record something in the studio tonight and she sent it to me that night and it was the same it wasn't even like a demo format the thing she recorded was the thing that's on the record that was kind of a catalyst to sort of like get me out of this little slump of not really knowing what to do with the record anymore and and um that was sort of the, the thing that needed to kind of like get the record over the line and that, and and that was that was sort of a big a big moment her delivering that delivering that vocal and from there on it was it was, seemed like a lot easier approachable task of actually finishing a record yeah it's definitely the centerpiece of of the project uh what specifically do you think about her performance helped t- tie it together for you in your mind or you know push you to to finish the album there wasn't sort of much of a theme 
before then. And I was sort of playing with the idea of like cycles and tides and transient, uh, you know, just things being transient in general and like movement and nothing staying still for too long. And she really kind of captured that lyrically. And it suddenly gave a sort of bit more of a narrative to the project. It kind of put it on a road that I could actually kind of see the end of. From there on, like the rest of the pieces all kind of fell into place a little bit. But yeah, it was a really, I mean, it's just a really inspiring vocal. I mean, I really love what she does. And I, I sort of immediately made this alternative version as well, sort of reharmonizing what she'd done, sort of taking away my original beat and trying something else, sort of building something else around her vocal. And I think that's, you know, that, that sort of collaborative input is sometimes what it needs to, to really jumpstart a kind of momentum again. We won't be dry soon I didn't realize it until you just said it, but it makes so much sense for an electronic music artist to be the person who really makes a fantastic record around the theme of movement and change and, and transience within the, the context of the pandemic, because it's something that we're all craving. Like we want this to be over. We want things to change, not necessarily go back to the way it was, but to not be in the situation we are in. And the genre that is arguably most concerned with movement, physical, you know, obviously, but also other kinds of movement is electronic music. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the genres that doesn't stay still very long either. Um, I mean, th things change so fast in, in electronic music. But yeah, I mean, that kind of plays back into the nostalgia thing, really, that there is no... You know, everything is, is constantly changing and evolving and so fast as well. And it was interesting going out back into clubs. I, I managed to spend, I haven't really been anywhere, but I, I was back in London very briefly for some sort of visa admin reasons and went out a couple of times into the UK clubs for the first time in a couple of years and seeing how it's changed, like everything maybe it's because people are back from, from not being there for such a long time, but there's, there's a, a a faster energy like the music is harder everyone's playing like 10 bpm faster people are like really kind of making it count i don't know if it's sort of overcompensation for two years of not having it but it seems that even in the absence of clubs they've changed just by sort of bringing them back everybody is sort of like hungry for like harder faster music now at least that was my sort of observation from from going out a couple of times in london so yeah nothing stays still for for a minute in uh, particularly in electronic music i feel like one of the songs that will you know really take over when you play it either in your live shows or the dj sets is otomo It's, it's a very, very good song, very powerful song. And I wanted to ask you specifically about how you sampled 
the Bulgarian choir. If this was something that you used your new modular synth uh, sampling techniques, or if it was uh, a backed basics sort of thing. Yeah, that one was interesting because I I so I was digging around for archives of just folk music from all over the world, and there was sort of like there was a sort of Polish jazz, and like there was uh, like Jewish choir music, and then there was this Bulgarian record, which I think was from the twenties, and it's sort of a bagpipe orchestra and choir and it's really hard to really decipher what's happening because it sounds like this very like harmonic is lovely kind of like cathedrally harmonic drone which was such an interesting sound and i just sort of like let it play for you know it's quite a long sample which is not something i usually do but i just found that there was there were so many possibilities to reharmonize this thing that that in itself was just like a really fun exercise just sort of imagining a kind of reharmonization of this of this quite droney choral thing but it kind of lacked structure I, and i was a big fan of o'flynn who's another producer and the way that he can sort of switch dynamics very quickly from sort of something that's quite melodic and ethereal to something that's just like very suddenly hard and percussive and i, I was thinking like maybe he could find a way to make this kind of work in a cohesive way so i kind of uh, i was just like asked him for some input and he ended up just kind of treating it like a remix in a way he kind of added this whole other element and it, it gave it this sort of like dynamic switch which is um, something that i couldn't really see from the beginning and yeah i mean it's been i knew it was potentially going to be a, a big sort of dance floor moment and i actually got to started to play it out again for the first time in the summer and you know in, in a club in new york and, and it was it was very sort of like rewarding to actually see firsthand that it was actually going to work and it was it was a thing that it was it was what i wanted it to be and yeah i think it's going to be when we go out on tour next year it's going to be sort of like a set closer so yeah it's it's um it's been really fun to kind of like share that again with people and i have to ask because i'm a huge nerd um is the title a reference to the creator of akira kashu hero uh otomo is it is exactly what it is yeah I was playing it to a friend of mine and one like, some of his immediate feedback was like, oh yeah, I'm getting big Akira vibes from this, which is accurate because be between the choir and the percussion, yeah, it's, it is, it does have this sort of Akira vibe. So I was like, let's reference that. And I feel like a lot more people would have picked up on it, but apparently not so many, but I'm glad you did because uh, yeah, that's, that's, it was, it was there to be, uh, to be referenced. Now, something uh, that I wanted to, to clarify, one of your press releases says that the harpist Lara Samoji works across the album. And I was wondering if, if that was the case, if that's if that's her harp we're hearing on all of the different songs, or if it's just her on, on tracks like Elysian. Well, the way it worked with, with Lara is I, I'm, I'm always finding myself like drawn towards harps and those kind of textures as a sample source. And I thought this time around, I mean, I'd met Laura through Lara through another friend of mine, Oliver Arnold's, because she's sort of in that in that world a little bit more. She does a lot of um, she's a class, classical harpist, but does a lot more a lot of experimental work as well, and is, is quite involved in film scoring. So she has she under sort of understands that there's a different approach to recording harp. You can be a bit more experimental with it and and try different sort of close miking techniques and and. So I thought it'd be really interesting to try and sort of you know cut a, a, an album's worth of recording with Lara. And using that as a sample source rather than recording specific parts for specific songs, I find that it's, I, I get more interesting results from 
uh, sort of manipulating audio that's not meant to fit into the current sort of keyframe or tempo. And that's, you know, that's how I've always worked with samples. So you get some, some more interesting results and textures from, from stretching something to fit rather than actually having it recorded perfectly in the first place. So using this like hours worth of recording I had from Lara, I was, I was starting, you know, I'm making all these little loops and little samples and trying to sort of use that session and weaving it into all these other ideas that I had. So that heart recording sort of features throughout most of the record um sometimes very prominently like an elision and other times it's just kind of a subtle thing i could be just you know chopping it up and using it as a baseline but yeah that is one of the kind of like cohesive textures i guess through the whole record is, is from that from that session and on from you this song intrigues me it feels like a little bit of an outlier in the context of the record. It feels like you're you're diving into Joji's world as much as you're, you know, pulling him into into yours. It sounds like you're really like going all in in this like, you know, noir tint tinged R and B sound. You said it was all in my mind. What was it like composing that song? And when did you know it was going to be a song that you wanted to put on Fragments? I'd actually had the beat, the instrumental for that for quite a while. And I was listening to stuff like more kind of like alternative R&B records. Like, I mean, the Kehlani record was a big one and some stuff from like Scissor uh, and people like that. And, and feeling like I'd like to try, you know, something in that world. Because it's not something I'd, I've, I've been adjacent to, but never like really approached full on in a sort of more like a sort of contemporary hip hop R&B setting. And I had this, I had this track and I thought myself that Joji was, I mean, I really like his first record with like um, Shlomo and Clams Casino. And I, I love the way that he's, he's sort of placing himself in that space. And it seemed like a slight curveball maybe, but I mean, I, I think that's kind of where the most interesting stuff happens is, is trying to sort of like, well, here's my version of, of what I feel this could be. You know, and I think if you if you're trying to make music that's that's a little bit outside of your own bubble and but it's like outside of your own comfort zone, then it's only it's still going to be you because it's your interpretation of it. But I think it's really interesting to try doing things that are like maybe you're a little less comfortable with in terms of like confident, like or, or a little less confident with is probably the better way to describe it. So I I figured like this is my interpretation of sort of a more like contemporary R and B sound. And yeah, and then I think with Joji's part, it was it really sort of took it into a, into another realm because I I still saw it as this, this this quite sort of you know quite left field sort of uh, instrumental beat, and he did something with it which was a little more kind of perhaps a little more kind of poppy with his vocal. Um, so it was a nice balance, yeah. But I don't think it's sort of it is not like a complete outlier. I still think there was a lot that kind of threads it back into the context of the rest of the record but um i kind of like that there is this sort of slightly kind of like unusual non-specific you know genre wise kind of uh, part of the record when you were 
you know, on, on hiatus from performing live, was there anything that you specifically missed about the live Bonobo sets versus the, the DJ sets or vice versa? I mean, the, the sort of the live touring is kind of seasonal in a way that it only really happens around the records and the records only happen every sort of few years. So the live touring had already kind of gone away before the pandemic happened. And there are things I miss about it. I mean, there's like the camaraderie, there's just like the being on this sort of never ending kind of road trip with with your friends and just sort of developing the music. I think that, that with, with, I mean, DJing is a very different thing and it's, it has it's a lot of, it has its own merits in very different ways, but with a live show, it still gives the music another chance to evolve. I mean, there's one sort of cutoff point, which is delivering the record and that's finished, but the live show allows, you know, it sort of allows the kind of record to continue growing and sort of sprout new branches and be sort of realized in different ways. And you never really know what that's going to be until you start doing it. You know, there might be sort of what might be kind of an accident one night will become part of the set the next night. And that's happened before quite a lot. So uh, yeah, I like the idea that that touring a record live still gives the the songs room to to change and evolve and grow and be something completely different. To close this out, I wanted to play a, a little bit of uh, the the last song from Fragments, Day by Day. This is a lovely track featuring Kadia Benet. Is there anything that you'd like to set up the track with? Any any memory from its production? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the reason this song, I think, was at the end of the record is it has a sort of optimism to it. And it's this sort of, it feels very hopeful. And I wanted it to be the closer because despite any other themes that have like gone before, it's the kind of like, it's all, you know, hopefully it comes across as like the uh, everything's going to be all right kind of moment. Wonderful. We'll hear that right now. Uh, Simon Green, aka Bonobo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Simon Green talking to The Fader's Jordan Darville. Bonobo's new album, Fragments, is out now via Ninja Tune. Our engineer is Tony Giambroni, and our associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. Remember to follow The Fader interview wherever you listen to podcasts and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader interview. Goodbye until then.